This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with author series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Government programs are transforming how they operate and do business, as Congress requires federally funded grant programs to be rooted in evidence that demonstrates that they are in fact effective. What does it take to scale evidence-based programs successfully? Given that most child welfare-related programs are publicly funded, what combination of federal, state, and local policy changes are needed to successfully scale evidence-based programs? and what management strategies and resources are needed to scale these programs effectively. I'll explore these questions and so much more with Patrick Lester, author of the IBM Center Report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare, Successes, Challenges, and Opportunities under the Family First Prevention Services Act. Patrick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be here. In 2008, Patrick, Congress enacted the Family First Prevention Services Act, also known as Family First. Uh, Would you tell us more about this law and would you identify the evidence-based interventions that it supports? Happy to do that, although it might be helpful to really start with a little bit of broader background about what evidence-based policy is and then how this fits into the broader movement. Um, If you were to look um, at what we call the evidence-based policy movement, which has really gotten a lot of attention, especially in the last decade, and on on a bipartisan basis, I think it really got going under President um, Bush Jr., Uh, President George W. Bush um, during the 2000s with a heavy focus on K-12 education. Later under President Obama, there was increased focus there. There was an extension of the focus in K-12 education, but a broader focus in social services arenas. Now, what do I mean by evidence-based policy? The basic idea behind this is um, I want to use the, the comparison of a drug. Uh, as you know, given what's happening in the in the broader world, we have a broader interest in, in um, agencies like the FDA, which have tested various drugs, which can be used um, to, to address certain health problems. And that's been true um, in the medical research arena, dating you know back to the 1990s and certainly before that, although the methodology is becoming increasingly rigorous in, in recent years. So what does an evidence-based treatment in this case mean? What it normally means is you will do a study you will randomly assign people both to a what's called a treatment group where the group receives the, the medication in, in general. And then you will have a control group where they receive a placebo or something that doesn't really do anything necessarily. And then you compare these two groups. And if, if the treatment group does better than the control group, then you know that particular drug is actually having an effect. The FDA, FDA will give it an approval and it, it ends up being uh, prescribed by doctors. Well, this basic methodology, something that people found, could be applied in other arenas, including education, social services, and others. So how would this work? 
you would do the exact same thing. Let's imagine you had a K-12 program, ended up, let's say, teaching, uh, having an after-school program. You would take, say, two, three, four hundred children. You would assign them randomly. One group would receive the new after-school program. The other group would receive the standard services that were that they're used to receive typically on a day-to-day basis. And then after you've done this program and then measured the results, whatever it may be, in this case, maybe academic results, compare the two groups. And if the treatment group does better than the control group, you know that particular program is better than services as usual. Now, too, this is something that's been, I would say, has really been used just in a few different areas. As I mentioned earlier, it really got started in K-12 education. Well, I mean, if you really want to go back, it would be medicine itself. But I would say in the social services and education world, it really got going in the, in the early 2000s under President George Bush Jr. Then President Obama had a handful of programs. One in, in education was called the I-3 program, which I've written about for the center before. Another was home visiting, which we'll talk about today. Another is teen pregnancy prevention. There have been a few other areas, and in each case, the idea was the feds provided funding to do this kind of research, and typically it was in a tiered-based format. So if you had a new program that was innovative and you wanted to see if it worked, the feds would provide funding so that you could test them, do the kind of control groups and all these other things that I mentioned earlier to find out if these new innovation, innovative programs actually worked. Most, innovation, um, most innovations do not work, and that's not specific to government. And that was even true under Thomas Edison. You know, we, I think they had how many uh, shots of the light bulb did they take before they finally got one that lit the world? Same idea is true in social services. If um, you may have 80% or 90% of new, quote, innovations, unquote, that are tested out, maybe only 10% of them work, but those that do work could be scaled. And that, of course, is the focus of this report. Once you've done that research, how do you successfully take something to scale? And, and to come back to your original question, which was about child welfare and this federal law called the Family First Prevention Services Act. As it turns out, this particular law got enacted just a couple of years ago. And I would say it's interesting because evidence was really not something that you would, a word that you would use to describe most services in the child welfare arena. Now, what is child welfare? For anyone who's listening to this, they may know it. The basic idea is you're trying to prevent child abuse and neglect. In some cases, children um, may grow up in very troubled homes. Sometimes they may have parents who are drug, drug addicted. They may be unemployed. There may be mental health issues um, and various forms of domestic abuse and neglect. And in an ideal world, um, what sometimes happens, which is not ideal, is the children will have to be removed from their parents. And that's certainly not something that we'd like to see, um, certainly for humanitarian reasons, but also because children tend to do better when they're being raised by their own parents. But in some cases, that's necessary. But if possible, what you really want to do is prevent the removal of a child from the home and instead address whatever may have been the problems that created uh, the child abuse and neglect to begin with. Thus, you've got a program where, okay, we're going to spend federal dollars with a mix of state dollars, too, to prevent this child abuse and neglect. And as it turns out, in the broad, there's many, many different kinds of programs that could be used to prevent child abuse and neglect. A very small proportion of them have actually had the research done, which shows that they're effective using those control groups and treatment groups that I mentioned earlier. Um, They happen to fall into three different areas. 
one of which is home visiting, another one which is mental health um, uh, treatment and uh, prevention programs, and also similarly in substance abuse, uh, particularly with the uh, rise of the opioids epidemic in recent years. That's been a major reason why children get removed from their home. As it turns out, in each of those three different groups of category, categories of programs, there are evidence-based programs, but there are very few. And you, the question would be, how did we end up focusing on this in child welfare? The basic answer is that evidence-based programs, if they are effective, have the potential to save money. And child abuse and child abuse prevention and child welfare in general has been a, one of those rare bipartisan issues where both Republicans and Democrats have been able to come together. The, the common meeting ground, however, is that whatever federal funds get spent on this, they wanted to have a sense that those programs would not be, those dollars rather would not be wasted, that in fact it would have a positive effect. And so basically we had a confluence of events that led to the creation of this federal act in 2018. Here we are in 2020. And we're at the implementation stage. And there are a lot of lessons that, that precede this, but basically that can inform this particular act going forward, but also can, can inform the broader lessons learned. Because really, if we were to step back from child welfare and look at evidence-based policy more broadly, we are still very much at the early going, the beginning of this curve. So lessons can be learned from this particular act that are important, not just for child welfare, but for these broader uh, social services, K-12 education, and um, health-related programs in general. I understand that only a small fraction of the amount spent on child welfare programs goes to evidence-based interventions. Would you elaborate on the reasons for the slow use of evidence-based services? Oh, sure. And and you end up seeing these reasons popping up over and over again, not just in child welfare. These are broader lessons learned. The very first um, reason is simply that there aren't research-backed programs uh, in this particular um, issue area in fact, this is actually true in general for social services. The research simply is not there to, to really document which programs are effective and which ones are not. Um, to some extent, and, and certainly in child welfare, this is because there hasn't been sufficient funding to pay for those kinds of studies. Research of this kind is not free. It is expensive. In the healthcare arena, I mentioned the FDA earlier, we've got decades of research have been that has been funded by the feds um, out of the National Institutes of Health. There is no similar research funding body um, for, for uh, social services in general. Uh, K-12 education at least does have uh, some federal funding that's de uh, devoted to, to research in, in that particular arena. And social services, really not so much, and certainly not in child welfare. The research that has been done has come from other sources, private philanthropy, over the years has, has provided some funding. And in fact, on a, in a backdoor basis, really NIH has provided some of the funding for some of these programs. Some of the other barriers, simply lack of knowledge, even if something is research-backed. A, a lot of the practitioners in the field don't necessarily know which programs are research-backed. Another barrier is, is politics. Uh, it may not surprise uh, you or your listeners to hear that even um, in a field where you are talking about nonprofit organizations that are not that not uh, motivated by the profit motive. Nevertheless, there are jobs at stake. Changing from one program that is uh, deemed not research-backed to another program that is means that some people who have existing research back or rather existing programmatic backgrounds and training will have to change. Uh, some nonprofits may lose contracts. Uh, as is often true in, in government spending, politics does come to, to bear on these sorts of decisions. So it's not easy to just change gears and shift funding from one uh, program to another. 
then there's just practical practical challenges. Uh, even if something is research backed, it is not necessarily always automatic or easy to replicate. Let's imagine in a you know in a previous research has shown that a particular program had worked well, and then you go and try to reproduce those results, and sometimes they don't reproduce quite as well. Sometimes because you're working with a different population, uh, kids or our parents who might come from uh, different levels of poverty or demographic backgrounds, you know, for instance, uh, Native American children are not the same as necessarily as, as children who might be of a different uh, background. And so you want to have culturally sensitive programs that actually are not cookie cutter, one size fits all. And so when it comes to the practical realities of replicating, even if something is research backed, it's not automatic that you'll get the exact same positive results that the research has suggested you would get. And then finally, there's the nuts and bolts of just going to scale. Even if something is working, there are just challenges associated with taking something from working with, say, 100 children to working with 1,000 children to 10,000 children. As you get to larger and larger scale, that means you're going to have different challenges. Just imagine if you were a franchise. McDonald's at one time was one site, and then they be, they grew to be uh, a franchise with, with many different sites throughout the country. It's the same thing. Once you start serving a larger and larger number of people, then you have to start training in different ways, um, and, and it just poses its own scaling-related challenges. So these are just some of the most common um, barriers that, that really uh, prevent us from going to scale with programs um, that are research-backed. That said, this is the goal, and this is what we were trying to do. And the real question is not um, whether we will do it, but how do we do so successfully? Patrick, that's very interesting. I was wondering, how can these barriers be overcome, and what does it take to scale evidence-based programs successfully? Yeah, well, I think in the simplest possible terms, there are really two factors. The first one is really about public policy. And when I first started doing this report, I have to confess, I was really looking at the nonprofit side of things and not at the public sector because a lot of what we'd seen in the implementation research suggested that there were barriers in replication that had a lot to do with quality. And that remains one of the two primary barriers, but really the most important barrier to scaling successfully is a lack of public dollars for programs that are evidence-based. And a lot of that is politics, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, some of it is just creating incentives without the public sector incentives, because all of these um, programs end up really drawing on public sources of funding. So without the public, say, buyer of these services saying, we want programs that are evidence-based, then the, the nonprofit sector providers and others that are actually doing this work, they're going to respond to what the public sector say they, says that they want. It's really hard for a nonprofit to say, we are going to do something that's evidence-based without the buyer saying that they want that. So at the front end, uh, the feds, states, and in some cases, counties and other local jurisdictions, which make these spending decisions, need to proactively make the decision to, for, to support these kind, this kind of funding. The Family First Act represents a major federal uh, step in that direction, but it leaves a lot of implementation to the states, and states in turn leave a lot of implementation uh, questions to the to county and local level. So it spills down from the feds down to the local level, and those decisions will end up driving um, you know, how, whether or not a program is actually being, that's evidence-based is actually being funded. The second half of it, once the funding is in place, are these various management strategies and resources, which ensure that once the funding stream is in place, are those funds being spent appropriately and effectively? And really that second piece uh, is also a major uh, focus of the report. 
so Patrick, would you tell us more about the evidence-based development modelers? I think they're also called purveyors under the Family First Act. And perhaps you could highlight some of the common activities and services the developers provide. Sure. Let me, so let me give you a little bit of background on how evidence is built. Now, I mentioned, described earlier this process, and I made the comparison to the FDA. Typically speaking, in most of these programs, what you will end up having is some academic who's housed at some university, who is a social scientist, who understands the quantitative and numerical aspects of a statistical analysis and how to do a randomized trial. Not all academics know how to do this, but there are a few that really have a a focus on this, have the methodological background, and so they'll do what amounts to an experiment. They'll go out and they'll find some local nonprofit that will partner with them. And they say, we have an idea. We think that approaching a particular um, challenge, it could be uh, reducing child abuse and neglect. We think we'll get better outcomes if we try X, Y, and Z, this particular program that may be based in, in previous research. We want to try this. Let's do an experiment. We don't know that it will work, uh, we will, but we'll do an evaluation and we'll start with a small group and we maybe 30, 40, 50 children. If we get preliminary good results, we'll expand it out to multiple sites and a larger group. And as we become increasingly confident that this works, we can, we can do some research on this. We can actually submit papers to various journals and get them published. Academics typically are very motivated by publishing. It's a publisher or a parish sort of environment in academia. Now, that's all well and good. Academics are very smart. Uh, They can do a lot. But once you get to the point where you're going beyond a simple experiment and where you actually want to grow something, let's imagine you've you've been published. uh, You've shown that a particular intervention actually does seem to work. Now we want to start taking it to scale and start replicating it in other places. Well, the skill set's different. As you can imagine, academics are very bright and certainly have their own strengths, but they aren't necessarily, in all cases, good managers. They don't necessarily know what's good for marketing. They didn't, you know, this is not really what, what they were trained to do. They were trained to do research. So what will typically happen is once you have a program or intervention that has preliminary evidence behind it, and they want to start scaling and really taking it seriously and providing for for more dollars, which may come from the the feds, it may come from different states and others. Well, then you need to start basically creating a, a network or a network, an organizational structure that will actually support that kind of expansion. And usually you'll you'll will create an, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Oftentimes the academic who did the original research will be on the board, but they won't necessarily run this organization because their primary focus is research, not running a nonprofit. And that particular nonprofit will then go out and start doing all sorts of things to support the expansion of that original intervention. So that will include things like marketing uh, so that you can get that intervention into a variety of different places. Oftentimes something will start in a particular state, but then you'll start working across state lines depending upon which states have, have shown an interest. There'll be early planning that goes along with with starting, you know, launching new programs and new sites. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, logistical hurdles associated with, associated with that. Once you are uh, launched in multiple sites, then the next question is, okay, you've got new nonprofits in other parts of the country or other parts of the state that are willing to try to expand this evidence-based intervention. Well, how do you make sure that they actually implement this intervention the same way it was originally when it was shown to work? That's something called fidelity, which we can come to back to later. It's, and a failure to replicate the original model with fidelity is one of the major reasons why evidence-based programs, when they're replicated, oftentimes do not produce the same results. Then there are just other nuts and bolts things, hiring, personnel, workforce issues. Um, these are things that any business person would certainly know about. Once you've hired the people, how do you train them appropriately so that they're 
they are implementing the intervention with the with fidelity again, as I mentioned earlier, to the original results. You know, what sorts of how do you do the training? Does it need to be in person? Do you have conferences? And then technology. I mean, you and I are talking today uh, online. I mean, the same kinds of things can happen with interventions. In fact, one of the interesting ones in this particular case is uh, is telehealth. If you're doing mental health services or substance abuse, especially if you're talking to someone who's not necessarily located in a urban center, like for instance, in a rural setting, a health crisis, which tends to make it harder to do face-to-face visits, technology, telehealth, things of that nature can also play a role. All of those things I just mentioned require a skill set and support and organizational structure that you're not going to get from an academic who originally designed the setting, the, the, the intervention. That person is not necessarily going to be the right person to take something to scale. And all of these are the same sorts of nuts and bolts, uh, sort of business-oriented, nonprofit nuts and bolts, which make a tremendous difference uh, whether or not a particular intervention uh, is able to work successfully as the earlier research suggested that it would. What are evidence-based home visiting programs, and how have they expanded significantly in recent years? I'll explore these questions and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Patrick Lester, author of the IBM Center Report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare, Successes, Challenges, and Opportunities under the Family First Prevention Services Act. Patrick, your report reviews the history of scaling evidence-based programs for each of the three sets of prevention services covered under the Family First Law. They are in-home parenting, mental health, and substance use disorder programs. I'd like to explore these programs a little more to provide the proper context. So poor parenting, as you point out, and child maltreatment can produce severe, long-lasting effects. So could you tell us more about the home visiting programs and how they help prevent child abuse and neglect? Sure. So home visiting has a long history. Um, Most of these programs do. Home visiting goes back probably a century or more. Uh, to the early 1900s. And the idea was that if you have a family 
and you, which has shown signs that there may be uh, child abuse and or neglect going on. And you will send typically a social worker into the home to, to provide background. You know, sometimes you'll have a, a young, maybe a teen parent who is who doesn't necessarily have skills yet to raise a child appropriately. And there are basic things that you can do that are parent training programs that, that will especially teach a young mother things that she may not necessarily know. And it's an easy way and relatively cost-effective way to make sure a child that might be, might be neglected, uh, no longer that that's no longer true. It's simply a case where a young mom needed a little bit of background and training. In other cases, there's all sorts of things, for instance, really uh, screening. Maybe there's a substance abuse program. Maybe someone needs a referral to another substance abuse program. Maybe there's mental health issues that need to be addressed, in which case you can set up uh, you can diagnose it and make sure that uh, a, a mother and or children are receiving the necessary services to address that. Doing that in the home ends up being um, typically less expensive. Uh, it does not require uh, treatment in a facility. Of course, if, if, if circumstances warrant, you can refer someone to that kind of a setting. But typically, home visiting is seen as a cost-effective way to really reduce child abuse and neglect and, and at least do some early screening. Now, uh, I think that the question is, how, how did we get to where we are today on the evidence side of things? As I mentioned, home visiting as a service strategy goes back at least a century. I think they started doing significant research in this area and, and the others, really starting, say, in the, the latter part of the 20th century, 1970s, 1980s, and beyond. Nurse Family Partnership is certainly a strong example in home visiting, um, where David Olds has done research going back decades and really was well-respected. And that uh, research by his organization, the Nurse Family Partnership, ended up forming the political basis for what was the creation of um, the McVie program, which is the federal home visiting, uh, evidence-based home visiting program, which got enacted uh, in 2010. It was included as part of the Affordable Care Act. And since that time, and that was a really important law, what has happened is with federal support, they're just about the vast majority of home visiting programs today, a decade later, really do have some level of evidence behind them. Now, that level of evidence can vary, but certainly the Nurse Family Partnership is considered one of the gold standard mo standard models. But there are many others that are out there that receive funding through McPhee. Uh, the feds leave it to the states to choose the, the exact service array and which organizations they want to work with. You asked earlier, uh, what was a model service? Um, what was a model developer? The Nurse Family Partnership is really um, an example, and there are others. Healthy Families America, uh, uh, Parents as Teachers, and there are many others. Um, and in this particular case, as is true in many uh, programs, what ends up happening is that the law created a federal uh, review process where they reviewed the research that's out there to make sure that it was legitimate uh, and that it was well-designed research. And then once something has met the federal standards, then a program becomes uh, eligible for, for federal funding. It's up, up to the states to decide how to spend, spend those, fu those funds. And then what ends up happening is once you get down to the local level, you've got home visiting programs that are that are happening, you know, at the front lines, almost the vast majority of which are evidence based. And I would say in general, uh, home visiting, because of this prior federal evidence uh, based effort, is really far more advanced than is true for social services in general. And I really highlight that home visiting in general is really a model for the for this particular child welfare program, Family First, but also for the, for federal programs in general. Home visiting is really well advanced, and there's there are a lot of good lessons that can can be broadly interpreted and pulled from this particular program. 
So I understand that home visiting as a general service strategy has a long track record, Patrick, but it took a significant leap forward in 2010. Can you tell us more about why that happened? And more importantly, why did the program status as an evidence-based initiative draw significant bipartisan support? Well, it's interesting. So 2010, of course, you know, the bigger story was the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, there are a lot of politics about that, which I won't go into. But behind the scenes, uh, from the latter years of the George W. Bush presidency, there had been interest in home visiting as a cost-effective way to address these issues, as I mentioned earlier, because if they're done well, then they show the potential to uh, save money, which is a major point um, when it comes to prevention-based programs. Now, why, if I can step back briefly, why would these programs save money? One of the things we haven't mentioned is what typically happens to if you have a child that is suffering from abuse and or neglect and you don't, you're not able to prevent that from happening. What will typically happen is a child will be removed from the home, unfortunately. Oftentimes, they'll try to place them with a foster parent temporarily, which is not ideal for the child. Um, in the worst case scenario, they'll end up being placed in a group home unless there are a certain number of children where that's really necessary. Someone, a child who might have very significant um, mental health barriers where a group home is really um, the most appropriate way. But that's usually not true. Usually what ends up happening with group homes is children are being put in a group home because they couldn't figure out where else to put them. These are very high cost situations where you have a campus-based setting. You have children oftentimes of all different ages, sometimes including teenagers, who are grouped together with poor or middling supervision, with very little um, in the way of services that would help ensure that they have better life outcomes. And this is generally an expensive and highly ineffective way to deal with child abuse problems. Whereas if you are able to, to implement an effective-based approach, stay home visiting, where you were actually able to prevent whatever was causing the neglect or abuse to begin with and keep that child with the original family, not only would you get better outcomes for the child, you would save all the costs associated with warehousing them in these large group homes, oftentimes state facilities, which can be very, very expensive, cost twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. So in an ideal circumstance, what you're getting is better outcomes at lower cost. And so this would have been tested in later years of the Bush administration and in the early years of the Obama administration. They took this previous bipartisan effort and said, let's include this in the Affordable Care Act. They did do that on a bipartisan basis, and that's how we got to where we are. Although evidence-based home visiting programs have expanded significantly in recent years, you note in your recent IBM Center report that there's further room to grow. Would you elaborate on this perspective and perhaps identify other evidence-based models? Well, so uh, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head what the numbers are, but even though home visiting is very successful, um, the amount of money that's being spent on it is still relatively limited. And I think the limiting factor is simply that while almost all of these programs are evidence-based, and they certainly do show some effect, those effects are, are so far, in most cases, relatively modest. In other words, there's still room to, to um, improve. Uh, for most of these programs. And so additional innovation, research, there's a an innovation and research cycle where you constantly want to take, be suggesting improvements, test them. If something does improve, then you incorporate that into the original model. And so over time, through this innovation cycle, you will get better outcomes over time. 
And I think we're still, even though we're 10 years in, we're still at the point where these programs have been shown to be effective, but they're not quite the home runs in most cases that we would yet like them to be. And the fact that we don't have those home run sorts of programs yet means that the amount of money that's being spent is still relatively limited. I think once we start seeing even more improvement over time as these programs get better, then states and others will allocate and shift more and more dollars into them. And I think the, the idea of, of lack of funding will solve itself. But really the effect, the research innovation um, pipeline really needs to, to continue to do its work. And as we get more effective programs, I think that the, the spending side will be addressed. Federal laws like Family First and the Maternal, Infant, and Early Childhood Home Visiting Program are helping to scale evidence-based interventions. But your research points out that the federal government is not acting alone. What roles are states playing in scaling evidence-based results? And perhaps you could highlight some of the most promising strategies. Yeah, so but this is these are the things I think that actually make home visiting a model. And then I have to say, when we get into some of the other areas, they won't be quite as positive as this. There is an infrastructure that's required to get that innovation research uh, cycle working in, in a very productive way. And in this particular case, the feds have provided that infrastructure. They, they provide dollars for continuous quality improvement. There is a network of home visiting researchers, which is federally supported. Um, they meet with one another, they communicate with one another on a regular basis. The way that the program is structured, a quarter of the existing dollars have to be reserved for new and innovative models, which helps keep um, spurring the innovation pipeline. Uh, Of course, the largest bulk of the funding is still reserved for programs that actually do have significant research uh, behind them. But behind these these innovation grants and the the support for research, which continues to be there, and really the spurs for new innovation, this particular program is well-structured so that I think that over time we are going to see more innovative programs. Those that are, are already research-backed will become better over time because more research will continue to be done so that they will continue to improve. That's exactly the kind of research um, and improvement cycle that you want to see. Uh, unfortunately, we don't see that in every research area. So for that reason, the home, federal home visiting program, because it provides that, is really a model for the others. I wish I could report that this is true in some of the areas, other areas that we're going to talk about, but they typically are not true for other programs. How does the history of evidence-based mental health treatment demonstrate the importance of federal incentives like those included in the Family First Act? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Patrick Lester, author of the IBM Center Report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare, Successes, Challenges, and Opportunities under the Family First Prevention Services Act. With over a billion dollars in federal funds spent annually on research for mental health treatment, the evidence for the effectiveness of these programs is more advanced than for most other child welfare-related services. You know, given your research, Patrick, why do few children or parents who come into contact with the child welfare system receive effective evidence-based mental health services? This goes back to some of the barriers that I mentioned at the beginning of uh, our conversation, but I would say I'll pick out two. One is simply um, cost, and this is something I haven't really mentioned yet. As it turns out, and this won't shock most people, the programs that are most effective tend to cost a little more. They tend to require training, they require fidelity, all of those things that are, that are necessary to ensure that you are getting services that are actually getting you the outcomes that you want. In this case, um, better mental health um, outcomes for the particular program. So you need uh, social workers and others that are appropriately trained, which costs money. Uh, oftentimes you need to have caseloads that are appropriate so people are getting enough time uh, with the particular um, therapist or social worker. And unfortunately, the way our political system works is a lot of times they want to spend money. They want to, uh, you know, say a state or county, they want to spend money on programs that are effective, but they have to serve a certain number of children or families. They don't have the funding uh, to pay the extra costs associated with an effective program. So they spend less per person on programs that are typically less effective or oftentimes ineffective simply because that's just the way that the, the resources tend to be spent. They would rather give more people a chance to get some therapy, even if they're not research-backed, rather than spend those limited resources on a smaller number of people, which means uh, you will still have a large set of individuals who get no therapy um, whatsoever. And the second piece of it, so one of it is simply that evidence-based programs typically cost more, and that's a barrier. The second piece is political. If you have an existing program that is, quote, evidence-based, say, therapy that's new, has been tested and shown to be very promising, um, in fact, to be considered to be research-backed, well, that will require existing uh, social programs to change. And in most cases, um, most states and counties are used to working with the existing set of nonprofits or therapists uh, who are used to doing things a certain way. For them to change to something that's new is to cost money, requires new, cha- new um, training. Sometimes existing nonprofit organizations that are providing the, the previous incumbent services are not able, they don't have the, the personnel to do the new program. And if for them, it would mean uh, losing dollars. It may mean a nonprofit organization going out of business. And even though nonprofits are not for-profit organizations, they have no desire to go out of business. Almost all of them think they're doing good work even if what they're doing doesn't necessarily have meet the same evidence standards. And so there's p- political resistance against change. So between just those two pieces, and there are others, uh, between the, the fact that many evidence-based interventions cost more per person and the fact that you know there's just a resistance to change, that tends to create a uh, status quo momentum, which means that even though you've got NIH funding new research all the time, and in fact, there are therapies out there that are considered research-backed, the vast majority of, of programs that are actually run that are federally funded are not, most of that spending is not being spent on these programs that are research-backed in this particular area. 
Years of funding has made mental health one of the better research child welfare-related fields. Nonetheless, you point out the need for continued research was highlighted by two major developments over the past five years. Can you elaborate and tell us more about these developments and their implications? Yeah, well, this is this is an interesting uh, set of issues because it's not just true for mental health. But, but let me, what do I mean by this, these two major challenges? Well, I, in 2015, five years ago, um, an organization called Center for Open uh, Science ended up um, funding all of these basically replication efforts in the world of psychology. And the idea was, okay, we've been spending all of this money over all of these years in mental health, among other areas, and we've got studies that suggest certain um, programs and interventions and therapies should work really well. How do we know um, that they're true? In most cases, what I just said is true. In most cases, science is validated through something called replication. If you do something once, and it suggests a certain outcome, if it's scientifically backed, you should be able to do that exact same study a second time, and you should give very similar results the second time, if in fact what you've done is valid. Well, the, the, this particular organization ended up funding replications of 100 different studies that have been published in high-ranking psychology journals. And when they did those replications, they found that just 39 of the 100 gave the same results that existed the first time around. In other words, the majority of research in these journals, which were, again, high-ranking psychology journals, was found to be not true. I mean, it turned it was not replicable. In other words, and that was that was considered a crisis at the time because these are the best journals. This is dollars that have been spent on the original research. These suggest that that if this particular percentage holds true across the entire field, then most of what we consider to be research backed is not valid once it's been subjected to a replication. That's a big crisis. And, and this particular um, replication study has been continued in other areas. And what they're finding is that in general, across a whole slew of scientific and social science related areas, if you replicate the original studies, often you will find that you do not get the same results the second time around, which should not be true. And this has come to be known as the replication crisis. Uh, and it's a, it's a phrase that's been true, not just in the social sciences, but also in science. There's all sorts of reasons for this, some of which is the original studies were not empowered appropriately. In some cases, there, there might be incentives. People want to believe that some things worked and they haven't necessarily done the really kind of hard-edged analysis, which would ensure that the original study was actually valid. The second piece, which is just as interesting from my point of view, but particularly in, the, in this area, is that in 2017, the exact year is actually earlier, a couple of years earlier, a year earlier, a researcher in the substance abuse arena and mental health also had done, actually, they didn't do replication. They just looked at, again, um, a variety of programs that had been reviewed by SAMHSA, the federal agency responsible for reviewing the existing evidence. And, and here, a particular um, academic was in Texas, said, I want to look at these studies and actually see if what the SAMHSA ratings for these programs are actually true, or if they actually hold up on further research. And what they found, this particular researcher found, was that in most cases, the federally approved research-backed programs, the research that had been the basis for those ratings was not as good as was believed, and that uh, most of what was considered research-backed or evidence-backed was based on weak evidence. 
What ended up happening as a result of this is in the early years of the Trump administration, uh, SAMHSA ended up canceling the contract for their evidence clearinghouse, which reviewed all these studies and said, we're going to start from scratch. We're just going to throw out completely all of this previous work because we believe these federal ratings of these programs are inadequate. When you put these two items together, these amounted to a one-two punch for evidence-based policy in this, these two particular areas. The one punch suggested that the broader research was not as solid as it should have been, and the second one being that, especially reaching the same conclusion, that even programs that have been federally reviewed did not have evidence that was as strong as we believed. And I, I guess you could say that this one-two punch could have really done a number on evidence-based policy in general. What it really has done is shown that evidence, legitimate, valid evidence that has been reviewed uh, and is being held to a very high standard is really important if evidence is going to work. Practical, replicated, field-based research is a strength of model developers, many of which can point to multiple replications of their early studies. Could you give us some examples in this area? Oh, well, you know, some model developers, which I mentioned earlier, some of them are better funded than others. I'll pick out a couple that I think are really quite good. There's family partnership that I mentioned earlier, and also um, MSP, multisystemic therapy, which actually provides services in both the substance abuse and mental health arena. In each of these cases, you have researchers and research that go back decades um, in each case, there are multi-million dollar organizations that have uh, continued to seek grants from various sources, including federal, and continue to do evidence, do replications with different populations. Uh, they'll test innovations. For instance, imagine if I mentioned tribal uh, children and families earlier. Let's imagine you were working with a tribal family and you wanted to do a, what amounts to a home visiting program for them. Let's try to create a particular program that, that is suitable on a cultural basis for this particular um, group. Well, then you would want to do the same program or some modification of it, the same idea that we did before, a control and treatment group, and then test it. And then once you've got your research, then you've got a modification to an original research-backed program, which has been adjusted and tested with a particular group. This costs money. And oftentimes the dollars will originally ultimately come from the federal level, maybe dollars that will go from the feds down to a university, down to model developers themselves oftentimes will apply for grants or in partnerships with academics to do these kinds of replications and innovation studies that I mentioned earlier. Sadly, um, because the dollars are not there, at least not consistently, not every model developer has access to that kind of funding and they haven't had the ability to do that same extensive replication. Some have, but most have not. And, and that's not surprising considering I said at the very beginning that most of the programs are not evidence-based at all. So even the, those that are evidence-based, the funding isn't there for them to do substantial amounts of replication. So a few like MST or Nurse Family Partnership that have done this are rare gems. Oftentimes you have very innovative uh, and entrepreneurial leadership that have been found ways to find the funding, even though the funding generally is not plentiful for this sort of thing. Patrick, how does the history of evidence-based mental health treatment demonstrate the importance of federal incentives like those included in the Family First Act? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the two biggest barriers to scaling appropriately, one of which is public policy and, and public dollars. Without the public dollars, you're not going to get a scaling of an evidence-based intervention. Family First includes incentives. Basically, they tell states in this particular law that we are creating a new federal entitlement. Well, it's actually an existing federal entitlement, but we're changing the entitlement to allow a new way of spending, which is to take dollars and spend them on prevention-based services. But, and here's the big but, as a state, you only get to tap that federal funding stream if you spend that money on programs that meet the evidence standards in the law. 
Now, the federal law creates a, a federal clearinghouse to review programs to make sure that they are, quote, evidence-based and grades them accordingly, according to a tier-based structure, you know, high, medium, and low. Basically, programs that have more evidence behind them get more funding. Uh, those that are earlier stage, that are more innovative in nature, get smaller grants but are still eligible. And then they leave it to the states to decide to how to allocate those funds. But this is important. The states don't get to spend that federal money unless it's on programs that actually have some level of evidence that has been rated at the federal level. And that's your incentive. If you are a state and you want to spend money on something that's research-backed or specifically in each of these three areas, um, in-home parenting programs, substance abuse, or mental health programs, if you want to do that, you can only do it and receive federal support if you spend it on programs that are research-backed. Well, as a state, they have a strong incentive. They want to get those federal dollars. So that creates the, the funding incentive for states to shift dollars towards programs that are evidence-based. And as we mentioned earlier, politics and other reasons tend to work against this. But once you put the federal incentives in place, you can counterbalance that. And in fact, states are right now pulling together state plans. Some of them have already have state-approved plans, and they are starting to shift money towards these evidence-based programs. We are already beginning to see dollars begin to shift in this direction. And really, I don't think it would be happening without the federal incentives that are in the federal law. How can we effectively scale evidence-based social programs? I'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery, by Yan Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Patrick Lester, author of the IBM Center Report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare, Successes, Challenges, and Opportunities under the Family First Prevention Services Act. Patrick, given that most child welfare-related programs are publicly funded, what combination of federal, state, and local public policy changes, that is legal, regulatory, or funding mechanisms, are needed to successfully scale evidence-based programs? Well, I think you need to be having a, like, a, like a motor. You need to have all of your sin, cylinders really running. And if any of those sin, cylinders is ma- malfunctioning, then the overall motor is not going to work. So at the federal level, you need to have incentives like exist in Family First. Now, Family First is still modest. First of all, it's still getting off the ground, and the amount of dollars that are likely to be used in the near term is still small. But if we start to include those same uh, funding incentives, which say, really are mandates from the Fed saying, if you want to use federal dollars, it has to be spent on evidence-based programs. Family First is a first step in that direction, but we are definitely, uh, we're probably a few years away from having that, that federal incentive really affect all state and local programs once it filters down. The next step after the federal level is for the states to take this seriously and say, yes, we also want our state portion of these funds to be spent. And for them to build in Similar sorts of um, strategies, including 
uh, in some states are better than others, include mandates which require state spending to be spent on programs that are evidence-based. Um, some states have even gone further and, and provided some level of funding for additional research themselves. Most states don't have funding for research, but a few of them have done so because they're closer to the front lines, have monitoring and seek, uh, continuous quality improvement programs. So some states have, have, have gone further than others to create that, that infrastructure that's really necessary at the state level. And then you have to have innovative policy people at the the county and local levels who are the closest to the front lines. And then beyond that, of course, outside of the public sector, in some cases, public sector agencies are the ones doing the implementation, but you have nonprofits who quite frequently are also doing implementation. And you have to have innovative, uh, really forward-thinking nonprofit leaders who are determined to to make sure that they are doing evidence-based work. So uh, any one of those levels, uh, if they're failing, means that at the front lines, you're going to get services that are not evidence-based and you won't see successful scale-up. You really need all of them to be functioning to really uh, see really system-wide and national change. Although there are many potential contributions to the success or failures of any scaling effort, what are the key recommendations offered in your report for the IBM Center, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare? So in the report, what I did uh, is we talked about through over this conversation, these three different areas, which have had really very different outcomes, some stronger than others. And, the, and what were the lessons learned from each of these three, substance abuse, mental health, in-home in parenting programs, that could really uh, inform the implementation of Family First? And I ended up uh, landing on just a handful of, of recommendations to states and, and feds and others. And they basically boiled down to these. So my first recommendation was that states and local jurisdictions really need to provide appropriate targeted funding. Family First is basically a permission slip. It allows states to spend money on these programs. It does not require them to spend money on these programs. They could, they could choose not to use the federal funding for evidence-based programs and continue to do what they are doing currently. So it really requires states and local jurisdictions to step up for this to actually happen. And so the first recommendation is, of course, for states and local jurisdictions to do that. And once they do, they need to, to really recognize that most of these programs that are evidence-based do cost more. And if you try to spend less, uh, you oftentimes won't get the outcomes that you hope for. So really, when a state or local jurisdiction wants to spend money on these kind of programs, they need to really proactively plan that the fact that there's a higher typically per capita cost and put the uh, the incentives and support structure in place to ensure that you get the effects that you want. Some states and local jurisdictions have gone further. They've got innovations like performance-based contracting, which I covered in another report for the IBM Center, value-based payments, which are very common in healthcare and Medicaid, and pay for success funding. These are innovations. Not, not every state has done this, but some states have. Um, others have got uh, have included innovations like evidence-informed budgeting, cost-benefit analyses, and other outcomes monitoring that, that help supplement and ensure that, that what they're doing at the state level is, is higher. And then lastly, it comes back to something that I mentioned earlier. You can't do evidence-based work if the evidence does not exist. And while we did spend a fair amount of time on this, this uh, call talking about those innovations and in programs like Nurse Family Partnership or MST that are evidence-based, they're the exceptions. Most programs are not evidence-based that, uh, that are out there being used with this particular population, which is child abuse and neglect. Most programs aren't evidence-based. And then, you know, most funding is not being spent on those few that are evidence-based. And to really address that, right at the front end of the pipeline, we need to have more dollars for research so we can make sure that if someone does make the decision to spend dollars on programs that work, that we've done that research to ensure that, that we know we've got a good 
good array, good service array of programs that we know Patrick, most of the recommendations in this report apply specifically to Family First, but there are also broader lessons that are applicable to evidence-based policy in general. What are some of those broader lessons? So this particular program is really purposely focused on child welfare in that particular audience, states and others. But there really are um, broader uh, research findings that are not just true of child welfare, but also these other areas like K-12 education or or some of the other social services programs where they're trying to do this, use the same evidence-based paradigm. The three I picked out were, were as follows. The first is you need to have dedicated federal dollars for research. Research typically is considered to be a public good, which is why we have the NIH, for instance, in healthcare, because once you've done the research and found something that works, and you can replicate that across the entire country. If you try to make states or local jurisdictions carry that, that um, burden, they're not going to have the resources. And the benefits you know, don't just go to that local jurisdiction. If you do it well, it would go to the nation. But you can't expect a particular city, county, or even state to cover the full load of research. This is really inappropriately a federal role. And at least in child welfare, those federal dollars for research are not there. But we need it in other areas too. Could be job training, social services education. I mentioned some of the few. So we need more dollars for research. The other is that you need federal and state support for scale. Without the public dollars, there isn't going to be the incentive to spend. Even if you have programs that are research-based, you aren't going to have the appropriate incentive structure in place to actually spend dollars on programs that do work. And if you, if you have research, if people aren't incentivized to use that research, then it's not going to do you much good. And then lastly, once you have that those incentives in place, the, the job is not over. The last piece is you need to implement these programs with quality. And that goes to all those nuts and bolts things, the training programs, the personnel, all the supports that come from a quality um, model developer and support structure. Because if you just expect someone to do something cookie cutter out of the box and say, okay, this is an evidence-based program, we want you to go ahead and do it. In most cases, those programs will not be replicated effectively. The frontline uh, providers need to have the necessary supports in place so they can take a research-backed intervention and do it the way it was intended. So those are the three pieces, research, uh, support, federal incentives for scale, and then basically a heavy-duty focus on quality. Patrick, what does the future hold in advancing the use of evidence-based policy and program development? Well, I am actually quite the optimist. Now, in the immediate short term, I'm a little bit concerned because as you and I are talking, um, there is the COVID-19 crisis that's called created all kinds of havoc, but also makes it difficult to scale up anything. So in the short term, and including Family First in terms of the rollout, I think we're going to be set back a little bit in this very short term. But in the long run, I'm very optimistic. I do think um, federal policymakers understand that they have a role and need to provide necessary research. I do think we're seeing continuous improvement across all of these areas. If we were to have this conversation 10 years from now, I think things would be quite a bit better and quite a bit different. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for the work you did in your IBM Center report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare. Thanks again. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, This work would would not have been done without your support. You can download this and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors series with Patrick Lester, author of the IBM Center Report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare, Successes, Challenges, and Opportunities under the Family First Prevention Services Act. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, and on your favorite podcast app or at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, 
I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network.